that's one of the myths, by the way, that, oh, if we go to college and we graduate, then someone's going to reach out and from the sky and hand me a dream job and I'm going to fly on a jet by the time I'm 35. That's not how the world works, guys. Come on. And it sounds so ridiculous when I say it, but deep down, many of us grew up believing Welcome, everybody, to The Chris Harder Show, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success, knowing that when good people like you make good money, they can then do great things. My name is Chris Harder, and several times per week, I will bring you epic guests, solo episodes, and every single tool, trick, and skill set you need to grow your business, grow your money mindset, and to grow your wealth to levels that you have never reached before. I've ended up in a unique place in life where I've got the experience, the connections, and all of the secrets that it takes to be successful. And I'm lifting the curtain to reveal it all to you in an effort to help put you in a position of abundance so great that you can then be as generous as possible. So let's lock arms and let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Chris Harder Show. I'm bringing one of my buddies back on, Ramit Seti. We are going to talk all about how the financial world and the career world has changed since we had him on the show last one year ago as the pandemic was just starting to unfold. Guys, I wanted to bring him back one year later because the last time he was on the show, the pandemic was literally just hitting. Like we were just being told, hey guys, stay at home for two weeks, flatten the curve, and we'll get through this thing. And here we are a year later, and boy, has the world changed big time. So I brought him back on the show so we could find, find out how his financial advice has changed since the pandemic hit. If you don't remember, Ramit Sethi is the uh, New York Times bestselling author of I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And they have sold millions and millions of copies of that book, and rightfully so. You know, he's really become this great personal development expert, and he's got a great website called I Will Teach You to Be Rich with tons of good free content. He's one of those believers that most content should be free, and he backs it up. I mean, he's got a community that includes over a million monthly readers, over 300,000 newsletter subscribers, and over 35,000 premium customers. That's a really big deal. He's making a huge financial impact. So I'm going to leverage all that experience so we can have a great updated conversation on how the management of your money has changed since the pandemic hit. We're going to talk about the K-shaped recovery. And if you don't know what the K-shaped recovery is, you're about to learn. I think you're going to find it fascinating. We're going to get into how job and career advice has changed in this quickly changing world and how you know if you should be looking for a new job right now. Now, we even end up having an interesting conversation about the housing market and what's going on there. And I think you should stick around to the end for this conversation because he has a take on it that I actually haven't heard very often before. And as we get into the show, I want to remind you that we are doing our best to give you all the free tips possible. Like I am on the same train as Ramit. Let's give away as much free, good quality information as possible so that anyone who's trying to be successful in life can do it for free. Let's save the paid stuff for later. Like let's, stay, let's save the paid stuff for after you've taken care of all the low-hanging fruit. And so do me a favor. I want you to quickly pause this and go to 2021blueprint.com. That's where we loaded all the free stuff that you need to be a successful entrepreneur for 2021. We put it in one place now. Go to 2021blueprint.com, 2021blueprint.com. I'm telling you, there's enough stuff there to take you from zero to six figures if you want without having to buy a thing. 2021blueprint.com. All right, guys, get ready. Listen up. Take some notes because this show is fire. Fire. 
Ramit, my friend, welcome back to the show. How you been? I've been great. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. You know, in, in full authenticity, I hate when I say, hey, you know, how have you been when we just spoke for like 10 minutes off the air? It's, it, I already know how you're doing, but congrats on your move to a sunnier place, man. That's great to hear. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be uh, back on the West Coast where I originally grew up. And um, I have to be careful not to send my friends pictures um, walking around in, say, February in shorts. Yep. Because it's uh, cruel to my friends going through 18 inches of snow. Listen, that's a real thing. I'm Midwest born and raised. And when I first moved out to Cali, I would do that all the time. And I didn't even mean to, I wasn't being rude about it. I was like, look at this, or at the beach today, or walking through Palisades Park today. And uh, I would get a little, you know, not the friendliest responses. And they're all in jest mostly, but it's a real thing. Like you don't want to rub it in. Yeah, I've learned that people don't like uh, seeing someone wearing a t-shirt and shorts when it's uh, 28 degrees where they live. Lessons learned that you learn in life. Wow, I learned a lot. Be sensitive to people in cold weather areas. (laughs) Hey, listen, man, the one thing that hasn't changed is you're just continuing to pour epic content out there. A lot of the epic has changed a little bit, and we're going to talk about that in the show. Just to kind of remind people who you are and what you're up to, let's do a quick round of one-word answers It'll kind of set the tone and and get listeners to catch up with you in a hurry. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. So where'd you grow up? Sacramento. And where do you live now? LA. Favorite book or podcast? Social Animal by Elliot Aronson. You know, selfishly asked this just so I can find out what books I'm going to read next. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One person who's had a really positive impact on you. Uh, One of my mentors, uh, BJ Fogg, who taught me about psychology at Stanford. Very cool. One thing the world needs to improve? Uh, empathy. Yeah. Favorite trait in other people? Enthusiasm. What makes you laugh? My wife. One superpower you have? Uh, understanding someone's psychology. couple more here. One word that describes your outlook the next 12 months? Positive. One word that describes you best? Relaxed. Love it. And last but not least, one thing you're grateful for today. Being able to talk to you. Ah, likewise. Okay, so let's get into a little bit deeper questions in the show here. And the last time that you were on the show, I have to set the, the, the scene for everybody. The pandemic was just hitting. And none of us quite knew. Remember, the message was, hey, two weeks, stay in your home, flatten the curve, we should be fine. And here we are literally about a year to the week later, and you're back on the show. My gosh, has the world changed, huh? Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. I remember back then, uh, I was living in Manhattan and I was seeing what was going on in the news, but it hadn't really hit us in the US. And I thought back to this class I took on trauma when I was in college. And one of the things we studied in there was uh, disasters like um, fires at a concert and uh, all, all kinds of disasters that you might encounter. And one of the predictors of people who survived versus those who didn't was that they were decisive. They moved. And so I quickly told my wife, we got to get out of here. And even though it was early, I remember sending my WhatsApp friend group telling them, we're leaving tomorrow. And I remember because they were like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, what do you, that's a little bit of an overreaction. And I wrote a post a few days later, I think we discussed it, that panic is bad, but overreaction is good. And in times of crisis, 
Overreact. It's okay. Yes, the worst is that we spend a little money. Um, maybe we look stupid because we have to come limping back in a week or two when we realize we overreacted. But the opposite is literally life or death. Yeah. You know? And so I think um, one of the lessons that I shared really early on and that I want to emphasize looking back, I think was a good one, was panic is bad, but overreaction is good. And that is what we save money for, for times like this. Ramit, speaking of money, you just said one of the traits in people that have the highest survival rate is decisiveness. Does that apply to finances too? Somewhat. Somewhat. Um, you know, if you think about most people's financial behavior, it's very much like flossing. Your dentist tells you once a year, yeah, you should floss. And you, you go, yeah, yeah, I know I should. But we don't really want to. And the time that we truly start flossing is when something really bad happens. Yeah. Okay. Same for finances. Most people, it becomes their number one concern as they go into their 40s. But most people have also never spent a weekend reading I Will Teach You To Be Rich or any money book. And so it takes these pivotal moments in our life to get us to start paying attention. And those are very predictable. It's when you turn 30 or 40. It's when you have kids. It's when you decide to buy a house. You get married or divorced and on and on. So being decisive, I wish people were more decisive, but that's actually less of a predictor. Uh, Bigger predictors of financial success would be starting early, automating, aka not trying to do it manually every month, being consistent when the market is good and bad, keeping on with your plan. Those are signs uh, of financial success, less about the heroic move to be decisive. Yeah. I agree with you on the consistency thing. And the one thing that has not been consistent over the past 12 months has been the, the huge change in the way the economy has unfolded. And this huge divide between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And you know they call it the K-shaped recovery and all these things. What are some of the biggest changes in people's finances that you've seen since the pandemic hit? Well, first, let's talk about the huge disparity because yeah. it's completely correct that the wealthy got wealthier mm-hmm. and that um, people who had less money or um, uh, lower skilled jobs, lower paying jobs were disproportionately hit. So we can't really take the average because they are so radically different, right? Basically, if you were good, you got better in general. And if you were on a precarious line, it got almost certainly worse. Okay, so that's number one. Um, What we see with people who had money is that their savings rate went way up, way up. Americans historically are horrible at saving money. Their, Their savings rate is abysmal. But... When you take away the ability to go out to restaurants uh, or to go do anything for that matter, suddenly you're saving tremendous amounts of money. So I have had a lot of people on my newsletter writing me feeling very guilty and saying, like, we've actually never been in such a good financial situation. And um, that's a conversation that really needs to be had. Now, we have other people who had jobs, maybe they were hourly, they worked in the service industry. Their savings rate has not gone up. If anything, it's been their finances have been decimated, and there's been a very slow ability to provide people aid. So that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but in, like I said, in general, there's two different stories going on here. And what I like to focus on, and I will teach you to be rich. Two things: one is what can we control. 
So what can we do about our savings, our investments, so that if something like this happens again, we're prepared? And then the second thing is, what can we do systemically so that we don't have people who are disproportionately affected and there's, they have no way to get help? Two separate things that we focus on at I Will Teach You Be Rich. All right, so let's, let's talk about both those things then. Uh, and let's start with the people that really got hit hard. How has your advice changed or what's changed in what you're instructing people to do in this post-pandemic economy? When the pandemic started, uh, my advice to everyone was to accept reality and move. And what that means is um, back then when restaurants were being closed down, there was still a lot of hope. Oh, maybe it will open up in a month. And my advice was really look around, accept reality. These industries are probably not opening up for months, if not years. Do not wait for somebody to come and save you, like your boss calling you and saying, coming tomorrow, you can't do it. And that's a really hard message because you know, ever since childhood, a lot of us instinctively want somebody to tell us it's going to be okay, especially when job loss is not our fault. Nobody here invited a pandemic. It happened. And so uh, my advice to people, for example, in the acting industry, which was shut down dramatically, start looking, start figuring out what you can do to find other ways to earn money, cut your expenses dramatically. Uh, And for those who did move, some of them thankfully were able to get some pretty good results because they moved early, just as I talked about with the trauma example. So that was my advice to them. And, um, you know, fortunately, some of them were able to, uh, with luck and with hard work, be able to salvage some of their financial uh, abilities. So let's take the other half, the ones where it felt like the abundant got more abundant. What kind of advice are you giving them in this day and age? Okay. I'll tell you what I started off with and I'll tell you what I've now shifted to. So first off was I want I told everybody, accelerate your emergency fund. At the time I'd recommended six months. And for the first time ever, I recommended a 12 month yep. emergency. Same. Yeah. And that was um, quite a shift uh, because a 12 month emergency fund is, it takes a long time to build. And it also means that you probably have to decrease payments towards any debt you might have and or any investment funds you have. So that got people really talking because a lot of them are saying, hey, what are you talking about? Why would I cut my contributions to my IRA or 401k and just put it in this boring savings account that's earning 0%? And I had to say to them, I understand you're losing a little bit of investment gain, but over the course of your entire life, six months of putting money from a 401k into a savings account, it's not really that much. And you're protecting yourself from a massive downside risk of getting laid off and not being able to find work in a recession. So this took a little bit of convincing. That was number one. Number two was once you have gotten stable, you got your 12-month emergency fund. The next is follow the plan. So anyone who's read my book knows there's a consistent plan for saving and investing every single month that happens automatically. In times of crisis, people start to second guess everything. Oh, I don't know. This plan doesn't work. Stay the plan. In fact, times like this are where incredible wealth is generated. Yes. Same as in 08, same as now, if you've looked at the market. And then finally, number three, for those who have done step one and step two is look for opportunities now. That could be investments. But it could also be a family member 
who may not have asked you for help, but you just know they need it. And I told them, write them a fat check. Don't even think twice. Just write the check. When you're tipping, triple what you're tipping. Don't ask. Just do it. And this really reward people felt this because you know they're sitting at home. A lot of them are feeling guilty, looking at their stock portfolio growing like crazy. Like, what can I do? And so I tried to show them examples. Write big checks. Donate generously. Don't ask questions. And I think people were moved by the ability for them to make a change too. Man, I love the advice on on both sides of the coin there. Let's stay on the subject just for another moment here. And let's go back to the people that feel beaten down, hopeless. They felt like they're already behind and and now their industry has been blown up. And they're seeing all these other people succeed. And they're seeing this big divide. And they're hearing about it in the news and whole nine yards. And they're just feeling like garbage. Now, obviously, you're famous for writing the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And by the way, Everyone needs to go out. And if you haven't read that book, it's like a staple of your financial education. You got to go read that book. And if you have read it, go read the damn thing again. But to the people feeling down and out, and you know what it's like to just not have hope. It's the worst feeling on a planet. You can't even see two feet in front of you. What can they do today to change their outcome? The most effective thing that I've seen for that step one is to surround yourself with people who are positive. So we all know, if we think back, for example, to that one class we had back in college, maybe it was a small class, a seminar, one that everybody wanted to be in. Okay, Or it could be a class at the community center where you signed up to learn Spanish or bonsai, and everybody in that room wanted to be there. Nobody was forced. They all wanted to be there. And that ability to look around and everyone is smiling. Everyone's pushing you and say, hey, great job. Oh, that looks really good. Good work. That ability, we lose that after we graduate from college, after we're surrounded um, by a lot of institutions where you know, you're kind of there because you're getting a paycheck. Or you're following people on Twitter who are really negative. And all they do is post negative stuff. All of us have heard phrases like... Uh, You should just be happy you have a job. Why are you complaining? Uh, We don't do things like that, et cetera, et cetera. And after a while, you start to believe it. My suggestion in that first step is to find somebody or find a group. It could be following you here, listening to this podcast. It could be following me on Instagram or newsletter, whatever, and get into that community. Start to see that there's a group of people who do want positivity, who are willing to do the work. That is the first step to moving away from the current place that you might be in. And it is such good advice. I love that. And it's age-old advice. It'll always, always work. Okay, so over the past year, I've seen you shift more than just coast, uh, you know, from east to west. Uh, I've seen you make a really hard shift into really taking on the job scene. And how timely? I mean, the the jobs were just decimated. I think, what do we see? 700,000 jobs lost a week still when the report comes out. It's not like it's gotten significantly better. Why have you made this great big shift from talking about the principles of teaching people to be rich to really taking on the job scene? Well, for a lot of us, finding a dream job is a core part of a rich life. All right, so let's remember that. Most people make most of their wealth from their nine to five job. That's a really hard message because if you're on Twitter, according to the people on Twitter, 
uh, working in nine to five jobs for losers yep. and only entrepreneurs are successful. That's bullshit. Yep. Okay. I, by the way, it's especially meaningful for me to say this because I train people how to start a business. I run my own business, but I've also worked and, and the people who my coworkers, they could go be entrepreneurs, but they choose to work at a company. Why? Because they can have a bigger impact together than they can have alone. Some of them like benefits. They like the stability of being paid. They like the challenges and the skills they learn. So the, let me just start by saying there's no shame in having a job. Okay. At all. I love that. Yeah. Now, years and years ago, I have a weird hobby, which is I love being interviewed for a job. So when I was, when I was like looking for college internships, I just loved going to these interviews. I got to dress up. I got to talk about myself for 45 minutes. And then I got to find out if I got the offer. It was very yes or no, black or white. And so I had a group of friends who were equally weird. And we used to compare notes. And we'd say like, what question did they ask you? Oh, what'd you say? How'd you respond to that? And we started to get really good at interviewing. So by the time we were you know, months into this, we could walk into any interview and effectively get the offer. Okay. And so, you know, that's how I got offers at places like Google and Intuit and a hedge fund and all this stuff. And so then I said to myself, well, is it just me? Sometimes you're just good at something, but can I actually see if this techniques I've learned work with other people? So I started helping my friends casually. This is in my early 20s. And I remember one of my friends, she had dropped out from law school and she felt really down and out because she had tons of debt. Her family had expected her to be a lawyer. She's like, what am I supposed to do? I have no skills whatsoever and a ton of debt. So I said to her, I will help you if you do everything I say. And she was like, fine, I got no other options. I'll do it. And so I ended up helping her get a job at JP Morgan. And then a few years later, another job at a a really good tech company. And so uh, years ago, I created a program helping people find their job. That was almost a decade ago. Now it was time to refresh it, to share all the things I've learned in the last decade. And that is why you know, I was, I'm here talking about what has changed in the last 10 years for finding a dream job. Ramit, was a big driver of that just that it always was an area of interest and you decided to dust it off again and update it? Or did it have anything to do with the job situation in this post-pandemic economy? Or was that a coincidence? Well, we started, we started rebuilding it before... Okay. Uh, the pandemic. So, I mean, in a way, the timing uh, became more urgent because there were tons of people out of work. But regardless of whether that happened or not, I think finding a dream job is a core part of many people's rich life. I would have done it anyway. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So let's talk about how finding a job has shifted and, and finding the right career for you, most importantly, has shifted. And let's frame it this way. If you're in the gym space, restaurant space, hospitality, any of that stuff, you've got your butt handed to you and the jobs are not exactly plentiful at the moment. So how has the landscape changed in the past 12 months? And how do you still find a dream job given the challenges? The first and uh, most obvious one is that remote work has blossomed. Yeah. So that's a huge one. We now have new material on how to find jobs that are remote because a lot of people love it. They're like, I don't want to go back to a two-hour commute every day. Great. So there's now new ways of doing that. How do you interview on Zoom? How do you negotiate your salary remotely? And what about if you find a company that you love, but they don't offer 
remote work, how do you convince them to let you work remotely? We actually have the exact script for that. Beyond that, I want to kind of share uh, a concept that we developed, which I think will be pretty interesting to people. If you think about most career advice, most of the advice is the same whether you are going for a $300,000 a year executive job or you're going for a $35,000 social worker job. Now, how can that be? That doesn't make any sense. The two pieces of advice need to be completely different. Everything from the way you find the job, how you uh, interview and negotiate, everything is different. So I want to share, just like we have seasons, you know, summer, winter, and on and on, we have seasons in our career. And as you're listening to this, I'd like to ask you, think about which one sounds like you today. So let's start off with the first season, which is called the growth season. Now, when I was in my early 20s, I was willing to work as much as it took. You want me to work Saturdays? No problem. 70 hours a week? Got it. You got it. No problem. Why? Because I was into growth. I wanted to grow my skills. I wanted to grow my income. I wanted to grow my network. And if you told me I got to show up at a meeting at 7 p.m., yeah, sounds good. Just tell me where. Okay. For a lot of people right now, whether you're in your 20s, 40s, doesn't matter. You're in the growth season. And some people are saying, yeah, that sounds like me. I'll do that if I can make $10,000 or $25,000 more per year. That's you. That's the growth season. Other people are cringing, saying, I don't want to do this. Sounds like hell to me. Okay, good. So that's not for you. The next season, this often happens when people are in their 30s or 40s. Often when they have a family, they switch to what we call the lifestyle season. Now, this can be um, I want to take my son or daughter to school every day. It can be, you know what? I just like skiing and I want to go skiing two times a week. Still means you're going to be good at your job, but you are going to be less interested in working 70 hours a week and lifestyle is a priority for you. Okay. So that's the second season. We did growth season, lifestyle season. And now the third season, which is called reinvention. Imagine the lawyer who after 20 years says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a beekeeper. Just something completely different. Now, this person has specific questions like, are my skills transferable? Do I have to deal with a 50% pay cut? How do I find the right beekeeping outfits to go work for? How do I change my resume? So this is the reinvention season. Now, for everyone listening, I'd like to ask you, which season are you in right now? Are you in the growth season, lifestyle season, or reinvention season? And Chris, the the biggest mistake people make is they try to pick two. Don't. You have to pick one. I'm just going to ask if I can pick two. Of course, because it's the most common thing people do. They go, they try to bargain with me. Hey, Ramit, I I really like growth, but I also like to ski. So I'm thinking growth and lifestyle. No, you got to pick one. And I'll tell you why. Because this frames your entire job hunt. For example... What I would teach people if they come to me and say, I'm in growth season. Okay, great. We're going to go look for companies and we're going to look at their employees and we're going to see that they have rapid growth in their careers. So they're getting promoted every 18 to 24 months. We're going to, we're going to do informational interviews and we're going to ask them. I'm going to show you the exact words to say. And they're going to tell you, oh yeah, they give you big raises, but you need to perform up or out, etc." That is going to frame which jobs you apply to And then when you craft your resume, when you go in for an interview, you're going to go in there and say, look, I'm here to excel. This isn't just a fun thing where I can go 
uh, home at 4.30 p.m. I'm here to win. And that company's going to love you. That's how you get jobs that pay you ten to $75,000 more wow. using our dream job program. That's amazing. Okay. So when you're describing that, uh, even though it's not a job, like just, I just think career, the words are interchangeable for me. I feel like I am in my lifestyle season. Here's an example. Last year, I went out, I bought this great big motor home. Like I can't, I'm happiest when I'm behind the wheel. I just want to be on the road. But my wife, my wife is in reinvention season. She just started a brand new alcohol startup, uh, raised a couple million dollars in a big fund, you know, has their launch coming up. And you know what startup life is like in, in that world. It's, it's all hands on deck. What, what do you do when one of you is in lifestyle season and the other person in the household is in one of the other two seasons? How do you reconcile wow. It's a great question. I mean, first of all, for you to both have language around what season you're in is really powerful. Yeah. So literally having the tools that you just described is powerful. Yeah. It, it, it now explains why you are behaving the way you are, yep. which is so helpful. Instead okay? of us building and stories about each other. Exactly. Now you have a framework. And we've just scratched the surface here. Of course, we go into it more in the Dream Job program, but at least you have the tools to start a conversation. Now you can start having conversations about, hey, of course, I want you to excel in this season. Let's talk a little bit about what are the expectations. How long do we expect this season to go on? And we're not looking for a precise month, but are we talking two years or 20 years? How do we know when we've won? It's really important to ask what is success because otherwise you end up just spinning along the hamster wheel forever. And what are the implications? For example, if you're in lifestyle season and you love being behind the wheel, okay, how do we honor that by, for example, you being able to travel four weeks a year with your wife needing to be connected, be on meetings, et cetera? You know, maybe you compromise, hey, I can, I can cut back or I can even go for a week on my own. Yeah. And she says, well, you know what? I can take some calls from the back and on and on. And you can map it out as much as possible and honor both of your seasons. Yeah, I love that. That's really good advice. And, and that's the, the best way to describe what we've been trying to do here. So speaking of these three seasons, growth season, lifestyle season, reinvention season, it's one thing to know what season you're in. It's another thing to know if you're in the right job or the right career for you within this season. How do I know if I'm in the right career for me? Well, there's a few, uh, there's a few kind of back of the napkin things you can do. One is just to look at how do you feel on Sundays? There's this uh, common phrase, the Sunday scaries. Powerful, and yeah. Yeah, when Sunday evening comes around and, and you just take an honest assessment. Do I have a pit in the bottom of my stomach? I've been there. Yeah, yeah. How did that feel when you were there on Sunday the evening? Worst. It's a physical dreading of... It started actually Saturday evening because because you like when I wake up on Sunday, I already know I'm going to be sad that I have to go back on Monday. And then you spend all Sunday instead of being present saying, oh my gosh, I remember I have this meeting Monday. Oh my gosh, I remember I have to see this boss or this business partner. It is the worst feeling on the planet. And yet we just trudge through it. Yeah. I, I remember a friend of mine from college who was an investment banker and um, somebody saw her calendar and it had an X on every day. And then there were a couple days in the month where there was no X. And the friend said to her, what's up with your calendar? And she said, oh, those are the days that I didn't feel sad. Oh, The days without the X. Of them. Oh. It's like crazy, right? But this it's is, real. It's real for a lot of people. Real. 
Yes. And all of us have these very distinct clues. So Sunday is a typically very visceral moment. Another moment is where you're sitting in a meeting and you start to speak up and nobody stops talking. They don't look at you. Why? Because they don't respect you. Wow. That's another visceral. And I'm looking for visceral examples. It could be uh, when you take your lunch and to go and eat in the, the room where everybody eats and you have nobody to eat with. That's another visceral moment where you know, you know what? I don't really enjoy spending time with my coworkers. One other one, which is common, we show people how to find out uh, if they are underpaid. And many of our dream job students discover that they are underpaid by over $10,000 per year. It's common. This is probably an average household income of what, 75 grand a year? So that's a lot. That's a huge percentage. It's a lot of money. And many of them find their minds blown because the numbers are actually even higher. Now, how does that happen? Um, We have... Most of us start our careers without negotiating. We don't know how. We're scared. In general, Americans hate negotiating. I love it, by the way. I was raised by Indian parents. I love it. Let's negotiate everything. So um, we start off at a disadvantage. And then it's compounded over the years. People should know that a single $5,000 raise in your 20s, a single raise when properly invested, can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Powerful. And people who uh, get one raise tend to get multiple raises. So it's important for people to get paid what they're worth. So we show them how to analyze that and all that stuff. Now, beyond all the negative stuff we just talked about, there's also positive things. You know if you're in a good job. For example, if you enjoy your coworkers, if you're being challenged, if you're being paid what you're worth on the market, uh, if you have growth potential, and or if your lifestyle is being served, if that's important to you. So it's not just, let's just talk about all the negative stuff. A good job can be really positive. In fact, I've had coworkers work at I Will Teach You Be Rich for over seven years. That's a sign that they're being challenged. They're being compensated. They're doing work that they like. That's what we're looking for in a dream job. So if you have a job where it really makes you happy, but you know you're underpaid, or if you have a job where you're just making bank and you are so unhappy, mm-hmm. making great money, are both of those reasons to go seek another career? Should Are you entitled to both happiness and a great wage? Well, you're not entitled to anything. Yeah. You're, you can try to find the right offer and you can try to have the skills and the communication skills to show them, but nobody's owed anything. Yep. Right? That's, that's important in terms of a dream job. Uh, that's one of the myths, by the way, that, oh, if we go to college and we graduate, then someone's going to reach out and from the sky and hand me a dream job and I'm going to fly on a jet by the time I'm 35. Uh-huh. That's not how the world works, guys. Come on. And it sounds so ridiculous when I say it, but deep down, many of us grew up believing. Yeah. Our parents taught us that. Yeah. And back then, actually, for a number of socioeconomic uh, reasons, you actually could have a very good life on one income, could buy a house, uh, you could afford healthcare, no problem, and raise a family. But for a variety of political reasons, which I would be thrilled to talk about another time, uh, that's really not feasible on one income anymore. And so we have to, the, the burden has been shifted. And again, remember when I said accept reality? We got to look around and accept reality. We can uh, wring our hands and um, we can wonder why doesn't somebody give me a dream job? 
And personally, I think we should try to make political change so that we have a better chance of finding a job, at least with a living wage. But nobody's giving us a dream job. We got to find it. What kind of political change would that be? And you don't have to get deep into politics here, but it's really funny that you bring that up because if you do look at average salaries versus average cost of living, Mm -hmm. it really is out of whack. If you look at the cost of buying a home, how quickly homes have gone up versus versus wages, it's really out of whack. And and by the way, I'm on team like roll up your sleeves and create your own destiny. But I also totally understand that everyone has different starting points and different life circumstances. So like, what is one of these systemic changes that we could make to help align wages with cost of living a little bit better? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that. And I also agree uh, that I can embrace personal responsibility and simultaneously advocate for systemic change. And this is something that is not talked about enough. Powerful statement, by the way. Thank you. It's not talked about enough in personal development. You know, there's often this idea that you're either all personal responsibility or hey, it's not my fault and I got to go change. Them. But no, it can be both. Yep. And that's what I advocate for. Yes, we all start at different places in life, right? For me, uh, growing up, my parents did not talk about fitness. I certainly wasn't learning what a deadlift was or how many grams of protein to eat. That was not a conversation happening in my family. And so I grew up this skinny Indian guy who didn't know anything about fitness. Okay. Now it took me a long time to learn and to find the right teachers to help me and teach me. And frankly, I wish I had learned it a lot sooner. I'm behind in some ways, and it will be very hard to catch up to some guy who started lifting at age 12. But I had to take personal responsibility. And I hope that more families grow up talking about and actually having access to more education, better food, easier defaults when it comes to health and fitness. Both are true. So in terms of politics and money, um, first of all, money is political. Anyone who's about to email me and say, oh, Ramit, stop talking about politics. Please listen closely. Money is politics. The fact that I pay a lower tax, I will pay a lower tax rate on my capital gains than somebody making $10 an hour is political and frankly is ridiculous. Okay. It's like why Warren Buffett pays an effective lower tax rate than his secretary. It makes no sense. That's one thing, which is uh, taxes. Taxes on the rich, in my opinion, should go up. Why? They're historically low. We also have historical inequality. Another thing is why can't you afford a house? For everybody listening, why is it so hard for you to buy a house? Well, guess what? It's not that you're stupid compared to your parents, it's not that you're lazy. It's not that you buy too many lattes or avocado toast, which is just bullshit. The answer is this country has systemically rejected building enough houses for our population. It's called NIMBYs, not in my backyard. And if you look up NIMBYs, and if you look up all the political reasons, for example, in California, there's something called Prop 13. If you trace it back, that's why housing is so expensive in areas of California. What's a NIMBY? What's a not in my backyard? That means, and you're going to hear that now that you are going to hear this, you're going to see it everywhere. So somebody buys a house in the 1970s, right? They're, they're a couple and they buy their house. The value goes way up. Why? Because in America, we financialize houses. In many other countries, a house is just something. Yeah. It's a place to live. That's it. But in our country, 
we've turned it into a religion where this is my biggest investment. First of all, housing often is not even a great investment. For, for Why do you think I rent? Of everyone, I hope it's not everybody's biggest investment. I teach the same well, thing, yes. Unfortunately, for most people, it is in America. And they've been raised for generations to believe that your house is the safest and best investment. Oh. And so second, what happens is the minute somebody buys a house, they predictably often become a NIMBY. A NIMBY says, no, I don't want any more housing built around. And they use the same excuses, literally the same ones we have on recordings since the 50s. And they say, what about the parking? What about... And what they really mean is, what about all these minorities coming to my neighborhood? But what they say is, well, we we don't know. I mean, yes, of course, we want access for everybody to have housing, but maybe you should do it over there, not over here, because we need to, quote, protect the character of our neighborhood. And so they use a variety of these excuses. All of them end up prohibiting the building of new housing. And so you get young people who can't afford housing and they feel guilty and they feel stupid because my mom and dad bought a house and they were only working one income. Why can't I do it? Well, the answer is the people who came before you got in and they don't want you to get in now. And remember one thing, why? It's not just that they're evil people. This is the important thing. It's not just that they're evil people. It's that Because a house is most people's biggest investment, the minute they get one, they naturally want to protect it. Yes. They don't want more housing because it will lower the value of their house. And so they concoct all these crazy reasons, but ultimately they're NIMBYs. And by the way, this is interesting. NIMBYs are both Republicans and Democrats. This is what's fascinating about it. That's why you see NIMBYs in uh, California, which is very liberal. But you also see it in red states. It's actually just a byproduct of buying a house. It's human nature of saying, now that I've been sold on the idea that this is my biggest asset, fear kicks in and I have to protect this asset because I've been taught this is the centerpiece of my well-being. Correct. And so this is an example where it's political, where as a society, we have to decide, is it more important to protect someone's... uh, ever increasing home value by restricting supply? Or is it a value that we should allow housing for young people, for the next generation? And this is a question that that is really, really tricky and political. So speaking of housing, right now there's housing boom going on everywhere, no matter what state you're in, red, blue, or, or purple in between. Is that a component of people finally waking up and saying, hey, we need more housing for people? Or is that just simple supply and demand? There's a great way to make money there right now. Uh, It's a great question. You may believe that there's a housing boom happening with building, but actually we haven't built enough housing in the last several decades. So even when you see cranes in cities like Seattle, LA, Manhattan, they are not even scratching the surface of building enough to satisfy. And that is why prices continue going up. Okay, it's simple supply and demand. And we actually see this in cities where they radically increase supply. Guess what? Prices come down. It's no different than buying eggs, et cetera, although it is more complicated because you have luxury buildings and not, et cetera. But one of the simple ways, which is the new philosophy called YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. Yes, we are going to build more. Yes, we are going to allow duplexes and even 
different types of buildings, uh, that brings the price of housing down. And remember, when we say brings the price of housing down, great for young people, but people who own a house hate hearing that. And realtors and, so and mortgage lenders and everybody. It's amazing this, this uh, let's call it crux that we're at. So we need more housing from a moral standpoint. And there's a good chance it could, I don't want to say crash the economy, but sure become a huge burden on the economy if we just meet the actual demand. It's what a crazy crux that we're at. And of course, the answer is you choose humanity but because uh, you can find other ways to boost the economy. But what an interesting juxtaposition that these parties are at. Well, that's what happens when you financialize places for people to live. Yeah. And you have many other countries that don't do this. Um, let's take, for example, Japan with Tokyo. Um, they build way up. So they have very tall buildings. Uh, they have different amenities available. You can have a very small place, which by the way, a lot of people would be happy if they could get a place smaller than what's typically offered. We see this now with this burgeoning industry of tiny homes. Yep. They have mixed use all over the place and housing is built enough to stabilize prices. Um, unfortunately, I have to say that once you financialize something, it's very hard to unfinancialize it because you have stories about granny complaining, oh my God, they're trying to kick me out of my house. My retirement, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and those are valid, right? We do need to protect the elderly from being kicked out on the street. That's not what we're trying to do. But it's really homeowners who have the political advantage because they vote. And so now with young people starting to get more politically active, we can start to say, what kind of future do we want for us? And that's why I want people to be thinking about their rich life is not just your interviewing skills and your investments. It's also who you vote for. Man, this is fascinating. We could unpack this all day. It's really fascinating. These these different angles of I will teach you to be rich. I feel like it needs to be followed up by I will also teach you to be happy and I will teach you to be caring and I will teach you to be loving and I will teach you to provide. And that's one of the reasons that that I just absolutely love chatting with you. So let's start to put a bow on this thing. The dream job program, who's it for? It's for people who are ready to either get paid a substantial raise, like I said, $10,000 to $75,000 more per year. It's for people who want to switch industries or jobs, and they're not sure what to do. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I don't know what, but I know I don't want to do this. And it's for people who realize they've done what they can at their job, but they're looking for how to build the skill of finding their next job and the rest of their dream career. Man, I love it. I mean, when you told me about the seasons, the growth season, the lifestyle season, the reinvention season, it suddenly made all of that make so much more sense. And so it's for everybody who's in one of those three seasons, basically. And they know that they're not getting paid what they need to get paid. And they know that they could be much happier, perhaps, if they were more aligned with a better career. So where should they go to get the Dream Job program? Uh, they can go to iwt.com slash podcast DJ, like Dream Job. I'll give it to you again. It's iwt.com slash podcast DJ. And we'll make sure, of course, that we put that in the show notes. So where can we find you? Where should we be getting all the good stuff? I know you got like <laughs> one of the world's biggest newsletters out there. You can find, uh, find me at iwt.com. You can uh, get on the newsletter there. We have hundreds of thousands of subscribers send out material on money, business, careers, and psychology. 
And you can also find me on Instagram at Ramit and on Twitter at Ramit as well. I love it. All right, man. One last question for you. The show's tagline is when good people make good money, they can do great things. Now that you've made a lot of good money, you have a a very large following. What is something great that it's allowed you to do for other people? Uh, Write big checks for donations and dream even bigger than I thought possible. I love it. Favorite charity you want to give a shout out to? Feeding America has done awesome stuff. And we we wrote them a nice check from the I Will Teach uh, company. So cool. And uh, I would support them, especially to make sure people are fed in times like this. Love that. Man, don't give up that given heart. I love it. It's one of the things that makes you really special. And I know it's one of the things that makes you successful because that'll drive you more than a nicer car, or bigger home or any of that stuff. Thank you very much. All right. Appreciate you being on, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.